It's like a koan, isn't it? <laughs> Love. What is that? It rules our lives, really, especially our lives. These people immersed in family life. But what the heck is it, and how does it operate? It's such a loaded word in our culture. There's so, so little agreement about what it means, what it doesn't mean, what it should be, what it shouldn't be. It means so many different things to so many different people. Even to just one person at one time, it means so many different things. And it's become a very complex and difficult subject in our culture. It's considered so important, really held up as an ideal, as a pinnacle of human experience, this love. It's spoken about as the greatest source of happiness, the meaning of all life, and all meaning of life. And yet, we really seem to have no clear idea or consensus of what exactly love is. And we've been in this situation for generations, ever since the modern Western concept of this kind of romantic or personal love came to the forefront in the courts of Europe. For those of us who live in families, love is really a central element of our lives. It's supposedly the glue that holds us together in these groups, in this lifestyle that we're living. And yet it seems that there's some hesitation for those of us who have organized our lives around our intimate relationships to really examine what it is we mean by love. I sense this in myself and I sense in many others there's a fear that if I really looked too closely at this thing called love that it might not turn out to be what I wanted it to be. It might not be as strong or compelling and that the whole foundation of my family life might just crumble before my eyes if I examine it too closely. So I think that there's a way in which there can be a certain comfort in leaving it vague and not looking too closely. But for those of us here who aspire to live more consciously, to really come to understand the nature of our minds, that doesn't really quite cut it, does it? There's going to be a huge gap in our practice if we don't explore this major element of our lives. In traditional Buddhist cultures, the thinking about love is really a lot more straightforward, a lot less romantic in some ways. Although, of course, in practice, the the workings of the human heart are always bound to be complex. But at least there's a framework for thinking about the various uh, flavors, the various elements of what we call love. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, the nature of love. I figure I've got 40 minutes. If Pascal can do the Eightfold Path in one talk, then we can at least begin to, to talk about the subject of love. But this talk is really just meant to be a framework for thinking about this subject. It's such a vast subject and one that we're going to be exploring for a long time in our own practice. So these are just some reflections, some thoughts, some teachings that you may not have encountered before, and something to give you food for thought. So begin to think about what love really is. We have to start by thinking a little bit first about what life really is. Our Western notion of love is really um, what we might call a very high-level concept meaning that it's built up on the foundation of many other supporting ideas, supporting experiences. 
In Dharma terms, we say that it's a conventional or relative reality. So when we say things, oh, I love you so much, or I'll always love you, those kinds of statements, any, anything along those lines, it's, that's really just an idea. That's a thought that we're holding or expressing in this moment based on all of our past conditioning and experience with a particular being. It doesn't actually refer to any concrete experience, any real experience that we can put our finger on, that we can directly know. There's no such experience as loving someone forever, or even for five minutes. There's no such experience as loving someone a certain amount. All, all we can really know in our direct experience is just what's happening in this moment. So these are conclusions that we arrive at when we reflect on the stories of our lives. And our lives have long, complex stories, getting longer and more complex every day. Stories about who we are, and our history, and our personality, and of all of our experiences and relationships and everything. And within these stories, there's a role for this idea of love, this concept of love. It's part of that narrative that we tell ourselves about our lives. You know, I met so-and-so, such-and-such a place, such-and-such a time, we fell in love, we did this, we did that, we did the other. Those are our, what we might call our love stories. Those are our stories about love. But the Dhamma, the truth of our unfolding lives, doesn't really happen on that scale. What we learn from the Buddha's teachings and what we see for ourselves when we sit down on the cushion here and really pay attention is that the experience of life is really breathtakingly fleeting. Our lives really unfold one moment of experience at a time. So there's a moment of love, a moment of pleasure, a moment of anger, a moment of pain, a moment of boredom, a moment of confusion, and on and on and on. That's really what's happening in our lives. That's our direct experience of life, what in Dharma terms we call absolute or ultimate reality, which reflects the universal truth of impermanence, what we call anicca, that experience is fleeting, a constantly moving stream. And this is what the Buddha's teachings are constantly pointing us toward. It's what this practice that we do here invites us to investigate and confirm in one way or another for ourselves so that it becomes part of our wisdom, part of what we really know in the deepest fiber of our understanding. But it takes some time and attention and patience to really become clear about this for ourselves, to really know this for ourselves. It's easy enough to accept on an intellectual level that yes, of course, everything changes. We don't need to sit and meditate to kind of get that. But that's only conventional wisdom, to really see it, to really take it in, to really feel it in our very bones, this momentary fleeting nature of every and all experience that takes time, it takes practice. That's what we're doing here. And it comes in different ways for each of us. At the beginning, it's really a leap of faith that this is how things are. Everything seems so solid. Our bodies feel so solid. Our thoughts and feelings seem so real, so significant. Even the breath at first, when we first start paying attention to it, seems very solid, monolithic. There's one breath, and then another, and then another. But at some point, we start to see that, 
oh, the inhalation and the exhalation really are different experiences. They're distinct. They have different sensations associated with them. There's certain sensations on the in-breath, and then they change on the out-breath, and then back again. And if we watch some more and pay more attention, then we start to see that even just the inhalation isn't one solid entity. It's also changing. It starts off in one way and then progresses in a different way through the middle, and then it ends. So there's an arc to it, a trajectory of changing sensations. And then at some point, we can really see the continuous change that's happening all through just that simple experience of breathing in and breathing out. That there's a constant flow of changing sensations. There's nothing even in that simple experience that we can point to as lasting for more than the briefest moment. And this is really the dawning of wisdom. So if we accept this view of reality, whether it's just intellectually on faith for now or with some confirmation from our own experience, then what place does love have in that kind of reality? If all experiences arise and pass in a moment, then love, too, must be the same. There's a story about uh, one of my Burmese teachers who was speaking with a Western student some time ago. And the student had apparently recently started a new relationship and was all excited and singing the praises of his new girlfriend and kind of gushing about how in love he was. And the teacher listened patiently and let him finish. And then he asked him very coolly which moments he was in love with. So if what we're accustomed to think of as a rather monolithic emotion, this big thing of love in our lives, is really a flow of constantly changing components, then what are the components? And it's important to look and try to see what are the building blocks out of which our minds are constructing these love stories? What's the actual experience behind all of that? So I want to take a little time and talk about a few of the important ones that are prominent or not so prominent in the Buddhist teachings. So maybe we can become a little clearer and look a little more closely. And I'm going to start kind of from the bottom up, (laughs) so that the good news comes at the end. (laughs) (laughs) So at the bottom of the love ladder, we have lobha, what's called lobha. And lobha is a Pali term that can be translated as desire. Pretty simple. And it refers to the self-interested, acquisitive aspects of love, the selfish elements of love the aspects of love that seek gratification, self-gratification. And it's often presented in the teachings as having three components. This is a, a quote from the suttas. It says, there are these three cravings. Which three? Craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, and craving for non-becoming. These are the three cravings. Is that clear? <laughs> I'll talk a little bit about it. The craving for sensuality is uh, actually pretty easy to understand. It's the desire for sense pleasure, which refers to all of our desire for gratification through the senses, through what we call the sense doors. And that includes pleasant physical experiences, so sights, sounds, tastes, odors, and touch, or sensations in the body, the ones that we enjoy and seek out. And in the dharmic view of the senses, it also includes the sense door of the mind, 
So all pleasant mental experiences, entertaining thoughts, pleasant feelings and emotions. And in my own life, I'm at a point where this aspect of love is really very prominent. Uh, You may have seen my daughter running around here these past few days. And you probably noticed her because she's just indescribably cute. (laughs) I'm not quite sure how it happened, but somehow I ended up with the cutest toddler in the world. Something in my karma, I don't know. And she's just so appealing, you know, just on a pure sensory level at this point in her little life. You know, I'll catch her dancing around on her tiptoes, holding her hands up in the air, uh, humming a little song to herself, and it just takes my breath away. The pleasure is just so intense of watching her and hearing her and thinking about her, perceiving her. And in that moment, I'm completely smitten by her. I just want to scoop her up and cover her in kisses. And then the next moment, of course, she's pulling the sofa apart. (laughs) And I'm like, hey, let's have some more of that dancing stuff. That was good. (laughs) And that's where the sense desire, you know, the sheer craving of it, of how I'm relating to her, really becomes apparent. And that kind of thing is just happening all the time these days. It's a big part of my practice right now. So if we look, this is one of the things that we can see going on in our relationships, this building block of moments of sensual craving, craving for sense gratification. And we all have our own particular hooks in our relationships at any given point, the things that draw us in, the things that particularly delight us. And that's something to bring mindfulness to. What we call the desire for becoming is a little bit more abstract, but also very pervasive. It's about our desire to see ourselves in a certain way, to create and maintain a certain self-image, a certain story about ourselves. That's how we create the character of ourselves in the story of our life. All the time we're creating this narrative about who we think we are, and the beings that we're in relationship with inevitably get drawn into that narrative. They're an important part of the story, our story. We want them to be or behave in certain ways, or accomplish certain things because we need that to be happy with our idea of ourselves. We need their lives to fit in with our stories about our lives and ourselves. And probably there's nowhere that this desire is stronger than in our families, and especially with our children. So much of our identity, so much of our self-esteem gets wrapped up in how they are and what they do. And this is something I've also been seeing with my daughter. You know, she's only two and a half, and yet there are so many ways in which I expect things from her. I want things from her to affirm my own sense of self, my own ideas about myself. In public places, especially right now, this becomes really clear. You know, she's two and will be out somewhere, and she gets tired or hungry or bored or whatever, and she starts fussing up, and people start looking to see what's going on. And instead of feeling that concern for whatever it is that's bothering her, whatever is ailing her, what comes up in my mind is, you know, hey kid, you're making me look bad here. So that's another big part of my practice these days, and I'm sure that's something that comes up for all of us, our expectations for our children, for our partners, for our families, how they ought to look, how they ought to be, and all of the craving that comes along with that. And the last of the three aspects of craving is the desire for non-becoming, which is really the flip side of the other two. 
It's another name for aversion. It's the desire to avoid or put an end to whatever we don't like, whatever we're not enjoying. And from time to time, we might find this arising in our relationships. Does anyone here ever just want the crying to stop? (laughs) Just want the whining to stop, the arguing, the fussing, the ignoring, or the, you know, whatever it is that's going on that is just not really what we want to be happening. Lots and lots of energy for all of us goes into this kind of wanting, the craving to get rid of whatever's going on with our loved ones that's uh, not giving us such a warm, fuzzy feeling of love at that moment. So if we think about it, these types of desires encompass really a huge amount of our interactions in our relationships. The desire, for example, to be intimate with our partner is clearly desire, lopa. But the desire to hug or kiss our child is also lopa. The desire to see our loved ones enjoying themselves, also lopa. The desire to sing a nice song with our friends, desire, craving. The desire for a stimulating or caring conversation with our loved ones is lopa. The desire to revisit pleasant memories or plan for future happiness with our families is lopa. Even the desire for our children's success in life, if our main preoccupation is its significance for us, is lopa, it's craving. And I could go on and on and on. There's huge swaths of the experience that we take delight in that are fundamental to our sense of satisfaction in our family life, that fall within this terrain of what the Buddha called desire. So this really presents a conundrum to us as practitioners living the family life. It's a bit of a paradox. Because we hear over and over in the Buddha's teachings that craving is the source of suffering. We were hearing this just last night from Pascal. It's the second of the Four Noble Truths. Craving wants to seek out and hold on to what's pleasant and avoid and push away what's painful. So it's really blind to the proof, the truth of impermanence. In that way, we say that it's grounded in ignorance and not knowing the truth of how things are. And so when we're in the grip of craving, we're bound to be acting in ways that are really out of harmony with the basic laws of the universe, with the basic laws of the human psyche. And that's bound to create stress and tension and suffering in one way or another. It may come across in all sorts of ways that affect others, especially those that are closest to us, that are those objects of our most passionate craving. We may end up speaking or acting in ways that don't respect others' needs, or just sending out an energy that's kind of tense and dissatisfied. Or it may be an internal struggle within our own mind and body that creates internal distress within our own system. There's really a tight, gripping energy in the body and mind when craving is present, even when it's bringing us pleasure. That's the paradox of craving. There's this tension that comes from the reaching itself, from the grasping, from the clinging. That's the second noble truth. And our children really know this on an intuitive level. It really amazes me. They really know when we're in the grip of desire, don't they? It's so interesting to me to see how well my daughter can read me. 
how she pulls away when she senses that I'm trying to get something from her or get her to do something that's really just all about me and my needs. She knows. It's like she can feel the hooks coming out to grab her, and she recoils. She resists. No one wants to be caught up in the grip of somebody else's desire. It's oppressive. It's essentially unhealthy. And we can probably all remember having the same response to our own parents' demands on us and all the ways that they tried to extract their own gratification from our relationships with them. Even in the healthiest and best adjusted families, desire is bound to be present. It's in the nature of these family relationships that we're in. So are we just stuck, those of us who chose this path of family and relationship? And one answer to this we can find in the story of the Buddha's experience on the night of his enlightenment. And a great deal happened on that night. I won't go into the whole story. But one of the things that happened as the Buddha was sitting under the bow tree seeking final liberation, full enlightenment, was that Mara came to visit him. Mara being the forces, all the dark forces of our mind. And he brought his three daughters, which are kind of an embodiment of the forces of craving that I've been describing. Their names are craving, hatred, and lust, Mara's three daughters. And they came in the form of beautiful young maidens and used all imaginable charms and enticements in an effort to seduce the bodhisattva, to lure him into the realm of selfish desire and away from his lofty goal. So did they succeed? We know that they didn't. What was the Buddha's reaction? And many of you have probably heard this story before. But we need to remind ourselves that the Buddha didn't lie down and weep with despair because desire had come to visit him. He didn't rush upon desire and attack them and try to forcibly eradicate them. He didn't even just calmly sit and ponder his situation and come up with a detailed plan for how to get them to go away. What he did was that he looked at them. He looked at them calmly and steadily, recognizing them for what they were, and he told them so. And this isn't just an entertaining myth, a nice story to interest the children. This is a real and very concrete practical wisdom training. So I would propose that it's not desire that's the problem, but simply not recognizing it, not seeing it for what it is. If we don't see the desire in our own hearts and minds, then we're destined to blindly act it out, to blindly act out whatever conditioning surfaces in response to it. And that's where we get into trouble. It's when we're operating on autopilot, unaware of our intention, unaware of our motivation, that we lose touch with the other person in the interaction and lose our connection, lose our ability to consider their experience and their needs as well as our own. That's when we get caught in the vicious cycle of repeating the mistakes that, we, that were made by those who cared for us, who in turn were unable to recognize the passions driving them. But when we are able to see the desires driving us, then it can become the fuel for wisdom rather than for suffering, an integral part of our path, rather than an obstruction or impediment to it, just as it did for the Buddha.
is this nice verse from the Dhammapada. It says, for a person forced on by his thinking, fierce in his passion, focused on beauty, craving grows all the more. He is the one who tightens the bond, but one who delights in the stilling of thinking, always mindful, cultivating awareness of what is unskillful. He is the one who will make an end, the one who will cut Mara's bond. And this is what I find to be really the great challenge and the great potential of practice and family life. It takes such courage, such commitment, to be willing to really face the truth of our desires. It's so much easier just not to look too closely. It's so much easier to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that our intentions are good ones and just assume that all is well. And on the big picture level, that may be. Our intentions may be good. On the level of the story of our life, of course we love our family. But what do we really aspire to? Do we want to construct a satisfying story about our lives? Or do we actually want to live a deeply satisfying life moment by moment by moment? Do we want to offer that gift to our loved ones as well? These are really difficult questions. And answering them through our practice takes ongoing attention each day, reconnecting with ourselves and our intentions. Moving right along. (laughs) I think I have a two-hour talk here. (laughs) So this is a little bit of a brief introduction to the topic of craving. There's really a huge amount that could be said about it. But um, it's also, to some extent, important to take it in in small bites. The subject of craving being associated with the second noble truth is clearly a major, major topic in Buddhist thought. And the traditional texts deal with it very extensively, breaking it down into lots of sub-components, lots of building blocks themselves. And there's a whole system of different types and degrees of craving and examination of their different qualities and implications. But there's one that I've come uh, to be quite intrigued by over my years as a householder. And we don't tend to talk about this a lot in this tradition, so I wanted to offer Um, as well, a little bit of an introduction to the teachings on what is called Pema, or sincere love. You may have heard uh, the name Pema is a popular name in uh, Tibetan culture and some other Mahayana cultures. It's very nice to name a daughter uh, sincere love or affection. One modern Burmese commentary on Buddhist psychology that I refer to a lot says that the term Pema is used for the love exchanged between sons and daughters brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, or members of the family and relatives and so on. Therefore, Pema means sincere love. And it goes on to say that this kind of sincere love is also called samyajana, which means binding. Samyajana binds one person to another as a rope does. It makes one inseparable from the other. So this Pema is spoken about as the tie that binds us to our families, to these other beings and these types of uh, family units. It's what keeps us with each other. 
So it's made very clear that Pema is a form of loba. It's a form of desire or craving. It's a particular variety of craving associated with those that we love in kind of the conventional sense of the term and are most intimate with in our lives. And it's said to be like salty water, that when we drink it in, it only makes us thirstier for more. It never actually quenches our thirst. And this is another quote from my Burmese book talking about Pema. It says that uh, beginning at birth, children learn to love their parents and relatives. As they grow older, they develop fondness and affection for their playmates and friends. Being guided by their basic instinct, they become thirstier and thirstier for love, as if they had drunk salty water. They drink more and more and become more and more thirsty. Being thirsty for love, they swirl about merrily in the sea of love. So there's this idea of a particular kind of affectionate love that applies to our families that somehow goes, in some way it goes beyond just the gross satisfaction of our own sense desires, but it's still firmly rooted in the terrain of desire. And yet we also find in the teachings, in many places, stories of sincere practitioners living family life, feeling this kind of affectionate love for each other, who go on to realize really high degrees of wisdom and liberation, even, very the, great, even the very greatest freedom possible. And their family relationships, supported by this kind of sincere love, affectionate love, are often represented as not only being as not only not being an obstacle to spiritual life, but often as being really an active support and an asset in progress on their path. And of course, there are also many, many places where family responsibilities and relationships are very explicitly called out as an impediment on the path. And that's kind of a whole topic in itself. But the more that I read the text, the more I read the discourses and the other uh, writings, the more it seems that it's the families where sincere love and caring are not present that are generally represented as unhelpful. Instances where there's, say, an arranged marriage or a marriage of convenience, and the family unit is really more than a business partnership, which was really the norm in the time of the Buddha rather than the exception. But in those cases where there was either a genuine reciprocal love match or where there was an arranged match, but it turned out to be a good one, and genuine love and caring really did grow, then life partnership and family life tend to really be treated much more sympathetically. So this terrain of Pema, this particular kind of desire, seems to be a little more ambiguous in the teachings, a little more open to interpretation. It seems that even though it's fundamentally an aspect of desire, it tends to inspire us to better things. It can be a force which is onward leading. It helps us along the path. And it's also recognized as a large part of the spiritual path for many of the Buddha's disciples. I find it interesting that in the Jataka stories, the stories of the Buddha's and his disciples' past lives on the long, long journey that they all took together to arrive at the lifetime of the Buddha's awakening, the Buddha and many of his male and female disciples are shown to have spent many, many lifetimes engaged in intimate family relationships with each other. In some ways, it's a little bit kind of like spiritual incest. 
They were all just following each other along through the cycle of samsara, lifetime after lifetime, doing the difficult work that they needed to do to arrive at that one critical moment where liberation would be possible. So the Buddha, to be himself, Siddhartha Gotama, before leaving the palace and setting out to seek enlightenment, had been married to the princess Yasodhara. And there are many Jataka stories dealing with all the past lives that these two beings had shared together in different kinds of intimate relationships, many of them as spouses, but also as siblings or mother and child, all sorts of different relationships. It's said that Yasodhara first met the Buddha-to-be when he was the hermit Sumedha, during the lifetime of the previous Buddha before this one, when he made his original vow to work to reach full enlightenment and to become the next Buddha for the benefit of all beings. And it's said that Yasodhara, the Yasodhara to be at that time, who was a lady called Sumida, made a similar vow to be the helpmate to the Bodhisattva, the Buddha to be, as he took this long journey and to help and support him in his quest. So there's this very long-term view in these teachings of a lot of time spent in relatively relatively healthy, wholesome, supportive relationships, walking the spiritual path together and aiding each other in the development of the heart and mind. And this is true for many of the Buddha's chief male and female disciples as well. The Arahant monk Sariputta, who is said to be second only to the Buddha in wisdom, is said to have spent many lifetimes in relationship with the Arahant nun, Kama, who was said to be foremost among the Buddha's women disciples in wisdom. And there are stories of their lifetimes together and the experiences that they shared that gradually evolved their formidable intellects from a place of uh, cleverness and really sometimes even cunning to one of deep wisdom and understanding. And there's the story of the monk, Kasapa, who became the senior monk in the monastic order after the Buddha's Parinibbana, after his passing away. And he was said to have been involved through many lifetimes with the Arahant nun Bada, who was said to have been foremost in the ability to recollect past lives. And in fact, these two were married during the time of the Buddha. Both had wanted to become ascetics, to avoid married life, and to lead the spiritual life, devoting themselves to practice but they were forced into marriage by their parents before the Buddha's awakening, which turned out to be quite a good match for them, but really kind of a big disappointment for their parents. They uh, spent a few years together supporting each other in their spiritual practice, but after encountering the Buddha and his teachings, made the joint decision to dissolve the marriage and live monastic lives separately, and eventually both became fully enlightened. So there's a certain message coming through these teachings that really acknowledges the importance of intimate relationships and love in our lives and honors their ability when they're healthy and wholesome to actually be onward leading, to actually further and support our efforts in spiritual life. It's said that just as a stone will sink if thrown into water, but will float if it's carried on a boat, So, too, the sincere love that we feel for each other won't drag us down into suffering if it's buoyed up by the support of wholesome thoughts and actions that we perform together. (coughs) 
during the time of the Buddha, there was a wealthy couple known as Nakula Pita and Nakula Mata, which means literally <coughs> Nakula's dad and Nakula's mom. Sometimes I feel like that's what my identity has turned into. <laughs> and it's said that they too had uh, been together as partners during many lifetimes. And during the time of the Buddha, they were able to hear his teachings and to do some practice together and had gained some really some true insight into the nature of impermanence and become devoted supporters and followers of the Buddha. And at one time they were sitting and discussing the Dhamma with the Buddha and Nikula Pita, the husband, said to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, I took Nikula Mata as my wife when I was young and since then I've never had even a thought of infidelity, let alone a single lapse. I've always wanted to be just with her in this lifetime and I always want to continue to be with her until our journey through samsara is complete. And hearing these words, Nikula Mata echoed the same sentiment. She said, Venerable Sir, I came with him to his house in my youth, and since then I've never had a thought of anyone else. I've always wanted to be with him, and always want to be with him throughout the whole of samsara. And the Buddha responded to this very sincere expression of Pema, of affection between this old couple, with a brief teaching on how to ensure that they would remain together in such a caring and supportive relationship into the future. He said, if two partners who are leading a harmonious life together wish to remain together in the future, then they should take care to be well matched in the qualities of faith, morality, generosity, and wisdom. Just as one is inspired and enthusiastic in their faith, so should the other be. Just as one is careful and compassionate in upholding moral conduct, just so should the other be. If one of them wishes to support a worthy cause, the other should encourage them. If the other wishes to offer aid to others, the first should be delighted. And so too they should strive to understand each other equally through wisdom and knowledge. So how very modern that sounds, doesn't it? how very egalitarian and beautiful, really. It's not quite the same ring to it as craving is the source of all suffering. There's a passage from a Burmese commentary that elaborates on this teaching saying, if two partners are in harmony and willing to be together, if they are well matched in generosity, morality, faith, and confidence, then they will live together in samsara like the glorious devas and devis, who live together joyfully in the heavenly abodes all through the cycle of rebirth. So this idea of Pema is something to ponder, what it means for us and what role it plays in our lives. Can we see moments where motivated by our affection, by love that is rooted in our preferences and our desires, moments where we can move beyond that and really into something greater? I want to end by talking a little bit about metta, which you've heard some about already, and if you've done any amount of practice in this tradition, you've probably heard a lot about, so I'm not going to speak as extensively about it. It literally means uh, friendliness. It comes from a word uh, that's the root for friend. But in the Buddhist teachings, it really takes on a much greater significance 
and refers to what we might call unconditional love or universal love. And this is really the high bar on the love ladder at the opposite end of the spectrum from desire or craving. It's the aspect of love that is truly selfless. It's unconcerned with our own fleeting gratification and concerned only with the genuine well-being of the object of our love, which could be ourselves as well. And this kind of love is said to be illimitable because there's no limit to the number or type of beings that we're able to offer it to. The types of love associated with desire, even with Pema, are actually the opposite. It's only really possible to feel those types of emotions rooted in desire for those who are closest to us, or who we at least come into regular contact with. So that really limits our opportunity to enjoy or cultivate those aspects of love. But metta is limitless. It's said that the only condition for feeling metta is to know that another being exists. Who that being is, how they are, what they're doing, what their relationship is to us, all the specifics of an individual personality are irrelevant to the feeling of metta. So this is what the Buddha calls true love, because it's unconditional, not dependent on any specific conditions. The quality of metta is compared to the love of a mother for her only cherished child. Those of you who have heard the metta sutta are probably familiar with this line. And we here have really some understanding of the magnitude of that claim. But it's not limited just to our children. Imagine taking the love that we feel for our children, the very best qualities of it, that fierce desire to protect, to care, and extending that to all living beings. It's said that this is the kind of uh, wholesome emotion that's felt by a bodhisattva or a Buddha. And that's a pretty high bar. And I mention it here, again, not to be discouraging, but to be encouraging, to be inspiring, to know that this is really possible for all of us, this beautiful quality of metta in our family relationships, in our less intimate relationships, and in our relationship with all of life. So this is just a little bit of an introduction to the mental states that make up what we call love. It's some food for thought, some terrain to explore, things to ponder. And an unskillful way to relate to these teachings is to make them part of our love story, to bring them into the high-level story, creating ideas about, oh, well, all I'm really capable of is just selfish desire, or, well, I really do have sincere love for my family, and that's okay, or I'll never really be able to feel metta for my spouse or for my children, or whatever it might be. Um, all of these kinds of thoughts are really a misinterpretation of the teaching. They're solidifying something that's inherently transient. The appropriate view of these mental states is that they all can and do arise in all of our minds when the conditions are right. We all experience these different aspects of love in our relationships at different times. And they're all transient, they're all fleeting. No single moment of any particular emotion defines who we are or how we are in our relationships.
But the promise of these teachings and of this practice is that it's possible to influence what arises in our minds. It is possible to train the heart and mind to love better, more skillfully, more happily. So as we practice mindfulness over the years, maybe more moments of mindfulness arise to meet those moments of craving when they arise, which in turn opens up a greater freedom to choose how we really want to respond to those desires, how we want to act on them. Or maybe situations that used to habitually trigger desire start to give rise to more moments of compassion and genuine caring. Or maybe we start to notice more moments of sincere and unselfish caring, of metta arising in our relations with others. So gradually, as wisdom grows, our capacity for true love will also inevitably grow to our own benefit and the benefit of all other beings in our lives. It's really one of the greatest gifts that we can give to the world, and it's possible for all of us. I just want to end by reading the Metta Sutta, which is always a good thing to do. And you can sit uh, with your eyes closed and just listen and reflect for this last minute. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you for listening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.